Yeah, Barry, perhaps you could say a word on the topic tonight. Okay. Introduction. Well, well, as I say, everybody here is doing some practice or is interested in doing some practice to secure higher consciousness, to um, make their lives more meaningful and more successful. And those who are here know that you and I are talking about spiritual enrichment of life. So I'd like you to speak to um, spiritual practices, their goals, and the requirements of practitioners to be successful. Okay. Uh, well, the first thing that comes to mind is, uh, uh, well, I, I grew up in Los Angeles. And uh, you'll all be very interested to know that I went to Alexander Hamilton High School. That's a very important little bit of information. But <laughs> I remember that when I was in high school, um, we used to watch these little films about, like, don't be a dropout, don't be a high school dropout, encouraging us to uh, continue our education because we'd have a much better life. And in fact, studies show that young people who are willing to uh, postpone uh, gratification or delay gratification for the sake of achieving ultimately a greater reward or more successful in life. So <clears throat> before talking specifically about spiritual practice, I, I just want to make a few remarks on the nature of the planet we're on and the nature of life in general. For example, if you want to achieve excellence in sports, in, let's say, music performance, in really business or, or anything, uh, it requires discipline, it requires practice, hard work, and delayed gratification. For example, I'll give an example from the music world because I, uh, my uh, rather than you know take anti-stress pills, I just play classical music. And so um, one has to go through that discipline. If, if someone just sits down at a keyboard and just plays whatever they feel like playing, that's nice. Uh, but if one also practices and learns basic uh, methods, then then one gets to the point of being able to express oneself at a much higher level. It's just like Let's say you wanted to express your love for somebody, but you have, let's say, a third grade vocabulary in English. Uh, you might just keep saying over and over again, I like you, I like you so much, I really like you. And, and if someone has uh, taken the time and effort to master language arts, then one is able to express oneself in a much more uh, complex and, and, and ultimately meaningful way. So. So that general principle of practice, of discipline, that you get what you pay for, uh, certainly holds true in spiritual life. It certainly holds true in spiritual life. So um, if you ask the question, what is spiritual life? Well, the most obvious, I think, definition would be it's a life focused on spirit. Obviously, spiritual is an English adjective formed from the noun spirit. And so a spiritual life uh, is a life focused on spirit. So we're using spirit here sort of in a serious philosophical sense, 
not like say, yeah, she's really got spirit or he's really got spirit, which can simply indicate a type of enthusiasm about anything. Uh, but in a more serious philosophical sense, uh, we find throughout history, really, at least throughout the history of civilized human life, that people have tended to notice that there is both an external and an internal dimension to life. That what we see on the surface of life is not all that's there. It's not every civilization that focused on this. For example, if you look at Middle Eastern uh, metaphysical cultures, they tended to be pious, but this worldly. If you look at Indo-European cultures and the cultures that kind of were influenced by them, you, you start to get systematic philosophical traditions. So again, if you look at the ancient world, the Greco-Roman world, or as uh, sometimes it's called the pagan world, a world very enthusiastic about philosophy. If you look at ancient South Asia, what we might call the Vedic culture, you see that both these civilizations developed independent, systematic, philosophical traditions. And so where does philosophy begin? Um, I think it really begins with a person not being fully satisfied by the surface of reality. For example, if you look in a mirror and you see yourself and, you know, mirror, mirror on the wall, but when you start to suspect, well, there's something more to my existence. I'm not just the face in the mirror. What about the, the self or the soul or, or somehow my inner existence? And of course, that's the source of meditation. People start to meditate when they're trying to track down that inner self. There are also <clears throat> external indications that the surface of our existence, what you see in the mirror, is not all there is to us because the body's always changing. <clears throat> As we know, we go through different stages, roughly infancy, childhood, adolescence, adult life, and so on. And yet, though the body is constantly changing, uh, there is a persistent, continuous self. So that in English, for example, we say, I was an infant, I was a child, I was an adolescent. Uh, so there is a um, sort of a universal recognition that it was me or it was you, and yet the body is very different. And so even if, for example, if you look in the political realm, the fact that now the sort of the default political system is democracy. Democracy is based on a sense that we're all equal, equal in dignity, equal for the law, and so on. Now, empirically speaking, if we want to stick to empirical science and stay away from metaphysics or religious ideas, uh, equality is absurd. Because every conceivable test that we could give human beings would show every time that we're not equal in terms of our athletic abilities, musical abilities, mathematical abilities, emotional IQ, uh, you know, empathy. Any list, I mean, you, any possible test given to a, let's say, a sufficient number of human beings, we get a real look, is going to show that we're not equal, we're different. And yet, in defiance of all empirical evidence, we insist on 
a political, judicial, moral, social system that assumes, again, in defiance of all empirical evidence, that in fact we're equal. So what is the basis of that equality? It can't be empirical. It can't be physical. If we are truly equal, then uh, that equality must be metaphysical. That's a word introduced by Aristotle. Meta means beyond or after. So metaphysical, what is beyond the physical? For example, not only equality, uh, what about related concepts like justice or, or good and evil? When, let's say, someone commits an evil act, such as killing innocent people, which I think is non-controversially evil. When someone kills innocent people, and, there, and there's no overriding uh, consideration, like let's say, typical question that's posed in generally in you know university philosophy classes would be that let's say that by killing 10 innocent people you could save a million innocent people do you do it and you could say well it's wrong to kill innocent people but then you could have saved a million people didn't do it that's you know that's the kind of thing you could lose sleep over but we're not talking about that we're talking about someone just kills innocent people and there's for no good reason so we agree that's evil, but in order for that act to be objectively, truly evil, it must be the case that we live in a bi-dimensional universe in which there are objective physical facts, such as the law of gravity or the fact that your body is occupying a certain space defined you know, by a certain height and whatever. Just as there are physical facts, there are also metaphysical facts in the universe, such as the fact that it's evil, it's wrong to kill for no good reason innocent people. Or, for example, there is some objective sense in which we're actually equal, and therefore democracy is not delusional. It actually is based on some kind of reality, the notion of equality, of equal justice under, under the law. So that being the case, if, if that's true, then that some things are really right and wrong, then we live in a bi-dimensional universe. And of course, we have a physical science. We have lots of physical sciences. But at the present time, we don't really have a metaphysical science. And, and I think that's the problem. Because if you want to study a physical science, you just go study it. You know, there's textbooks, there's courses, and you study it. But if you want to learn a metaphysical science, it's kind of chaotic. It's unregulated. For example, it wasn't until the 1870s that uh, you had to get a license to be a surgeon or a doctor in this country. Up until, I forget the exact date, but it's, you know, it's roughly the 1870s or 1880s. Around that time, um, you could just put a sign up outside your house saying, I'm a doctor and I perform surgery. And I mean, there are tragic results of that. It said that both the two great composers, Bach and Handel, toward the end of their life, it said they were both blinded by a quack you know, ophthalmologist. And, and so until relatively recently, it was unregulated. The medical profession was unregulated. I'm not saying that the government should you know, issue licenses to spiritual movements that it deems are really worthy of the license, but I'm simply saying, because that would, I'm sure, cause more harm than good. Rather, I'm saying that um, we do live in an age where uh, there's no 
it's just a big free-for-all. And um, so there's no sense of trying to get in a trying to get in a disciplined, reasonable manner, trying to get at metaphysical truth and, and trying to find something that's like a metaphysical science. And so it's precisely Krishna consciousness that that presents that, or claims to present that. And of course, everyone has to evaluate it themselves, make their own decision. Uh, there are other factors which really should motivate a rational human being to seek a metaphysical science. One being our own mortality. Uh, some people kind of put out this bravado, like, I don't mind if I have to die, it doesn't bother me, I'm ready to die. But I think that in most cases, first of all, I think that's a bluff. And secondly, it, it logically follows that if you don't place a negative value on losing life, you don't really pay, place a positive value on, on possessing it. Let's say you lose a thousand dollars and you say, that means nothing to me, I don't care about that. It means that it just wasn't that important to you. Because the extent to which you value something, to that extent, the loss of it is a negative value. And so I think anyone that truly loves life, anyone that truly values life, uh, must see significant negative value in losing life. And therefore, it's natural that we investigate the possibility of not losing life, that if I'm not the body, if I'm really, really some kind of spiritual or metaphysical being, then the demise of the body does not entail my own demise or my own death, because I'm different from the body, I'm a spiritual being. So people have investigated this and meditated on this in various ways for many thousands of years all around the world. This is certainly not exclusive to Krishna consciousness. You find it all over the world. People exploring the uh, possibility of an eternal self or meditating on it or trying to achieve that self. And then, of course, it's also natural to ask, where does it all come from? For example, let's say you go to bed tonight and you wake up in some strange world. Uh, everything okay there, technically? Yes, everything is okay. okay. Uh, I think sometimes, have, has everybody had any difficulty here, or is it basically good? There have been a couple of times where it was, what you said was indistinct. Um, essentially, it's good. I moved over because somebody made a request which I'll put to you, and you know. Okay. I didn't want to. Okay, I'll, I'll but, just uh, I'll, I'll just wrap up this point, and I'd be happy to uh, take any requests. So, let's say you go to bed tonight, and you wake up tomorrow morning in some strange world. It seems to me the first thing you would do is really try to figure out where am I, how did I get here, and what's going on. Well, guess what? That's exactly what happened to every one of us. We did wake up in a strange world. It's called Earth. And uh, of course, little infants, little infants aren't totally equipped for a serious philosophical quest. But you know, once one reaches a certain age, it seems to me we got to get down to business. Like, what is this world? What am I doing here? Where did I come from? Where am I going? Can I see the entire cosmic menu so I know what I want to order? You know, what's possible for me and where could I go when I leave this world? And so 
that I think is what life is really all about, despite what poor Frederick Nietzsche tried to tell us. And so, so that's what Krishna content. That, that's really the beginning of our spiritual life when we try to understand who are we, where did we come from, what are we doing in this world, and and what are the options? Who am I ultimately, and and how do I get back to my best self? So, uh, someone had a question or. Yes. Sure. Yes. Uh, Rena, who's part of the Bhakti Society, had questions. Yes. And I also want to say this might be a good time for others who have questions. Pass them to me. And after uh, HD speaks about this, then you can address your questions. So, Rena wants to know if you could speak on the symptom of the soul. Symptom of the soul? Right. I would say, most importantly, consciousness. For example, let's say you, you're walking in the woods and you sit down on a, on a flat stone. Your friends probably won't say, how can you do that? You're just using that stone. Yeah, I mean, that's what people do. They use stone. So it's, whereas let's say you're out for a walk and you throw one of your friends on the ground and sit on that friend, uh, probably the other people would be very disturbed by that. and They would think that, you know, there, we, have, we really have a problem here. So there are inanimate, unconscious things, and there are living, conscious beings. So the main symptoms of the soul are to be alive and conscious, and but to be conscious in a certain way, because you could, I mean, we can imagine, it's not us, but we can imagine a being that is conscious, but that has no will. That would be kind of creepy. I mean, if you really think about it, if you really think about it, being conscious but having no will, no desire, and just just being this like this thing that perceives but without any purpose. You have no purpose. You have no values. It's some meditators think that would be a great place to be. I think it's it would be like un, just like infinitely creepy. Because what really makes me a person, and what makes you a person, is that we have purposes, we can love, we can be loved, we we can value things, we can create, we can choose to create beauty in the world, either through art or through our own behavior, through we can do great things, we can, I mean, to be a person. And so we, we not only are alive and conscious, but we're conscious with free will, which is a fantastic gift. It, it's just it's, it's an invaluable gift that we have free will, that we have purpose, that we... And, and so therefore the question is, if I'm consciousness, if somehow consciousness, free consciousness, being a free conscious person is the essence of who I am, then what am I doing in a world in which I'm encased in unconscious, unpurposeful, or purposeless, dead matter. Why aren't I in a world where everything is consciousness, where I have desires, why can't I fulfill them? For example, let's say too hot or too cold, which is one of the, I think one of the uh, most distinct meteorological features of the Midwest. So, sorry, I'm, I'm from California, I'm a weather snob. Anyway, so, I mean, 
if you think about it in, in, in so many situations every day throughout your life, you would adjust things in some way. You might make the weather better. You might want to be personally more attractive than you are. You might want to know things you don't know. You might want to fly to other planets. I mean, there, there are so many things. You might want to be free of an attachment that's causing you suffering because somehow you become attached to someone who's not returning your love and therefore it's just a cause of suffering. And so, I mean, there, you might want to write a great novel, but somehow it doesn't come out. And so there's so many things that we want to do. We, we could, in our minds, we can imagine a world much more satisfying than this one. Uh, a world which is more natural, which, which is just full of beauty, full of kindness, and, and a world in which you don't die. And so, so why is it that the world falls so far short of our imagination? After all, if the world is created by God, um, and I can think of a better world than the one God created, what's going on here? Why did God create a world such that I could actually imagine a much better world. Why am I in that situation? So anyway, the question was, I guess, the characteristics or symptoms of the soul. I think it's, it, it's to be alive. And of course, being alive won't do you much good unless you're conscious. It's being alive, it's being conscious, and not merely being aware, but having your own unique will and purpose and being able to dream and imagine and to seek and to love and to be loved. So that's the soul. Thank you very much. Thank you. I, I, I want to mention, I'll put in a plug, HD uh, has written a comprehensive guide to the study of the Bhagavad Gita, the subject of which is essentially to understand the self, the soul, and to understand God and the relationship between God and the soul. I have six copies of that that are available to anyone who wishes to take one yeah. today. We don't, we, don't, uh, we don't want to fight to break out over the book, you know, so... Just kidding, <laughs> just kidding. Now, someone else may like to ask... Actually, the, uh, I just mentioned one thing. The book, I think, is, is doing well. It's actually being used in university classes as a textbook here and there, and also it's, uh, I think it's a very simple, understandable English, so yeah. But go ahead, I, I'll, I'll stop the infomercial here. <laughs> okay. Anyone else? It has another question. Mm -hmm. um, when we meditate, what do you suggest we focus on? Oh, hi. Um, when we meditate, uh, we focused on the highest truth, uh, because we're part of that truth. And so, and so in that sense, realizing the absolute truth and realizing ourselves is really the same process. For example, just to give a simple worldly example, I'm a member of a family. And so... To understand me, you know, deeply, you'd have to understand something of my family, where I grew up and so on. The same thing for you. So, um, 
we meditate on Krishna because the word Krishna means it's I mean the way it's etymologized um, the all attractive the fact that God is infinitely beautiful uh, rather than let's say infinitely, infinitely jealous the idea that uh, God is infinitely beautiful and the source of all pleasure because in order for your meditation, to, in order for you to really be absorbed in your meditation and not get impatient or antsy or, you know, uh-oh, I'm getting a text right now. In order to really, in order to really get into your meditation, that meditation has to be a source of, of great happiness for you. In fact, if your meditation is not giving you greater happiness than your other life, why meditate? So um, that's the basic principle is that um, if we are attracted, if we can understand that there is a source of everything which is infinitely beautiful and it's also the source of infinite pleasure, then we naturally, spiritual life becomes very easy. Thank you. Is that clear? I don't know if, if I really... Was that all right? I just had to tell yeah, She said she understood and she appreciated your answer. Oh, then, yeah. Then, hard, thank you very she's much. Chanting oh. Rina is Chaitanya. That's great. Of course. Um, I am. <laughs> I am. <laughs> Yeah, that, what's that? She wanted to know, she has a friend, Malik, who just became a resident of New York. He's uh, joined the movement. And so she was wondering if you sometimes visit or reside in New York, whether uh, could see you. I, my base is in L.A., so if you send me the contact information, the next time I go to L.A., I'd be happy to meet him. Okay. Okay. Um, I'll, I'll be bold. Uh, Kevin has uh, let me know that he's interested in dedicating himself more to Krishna consciousness. I'll tell you a funny anecdote. When I met Kevin, I didn't believe him. He said, this is the first time I've ever met the police. He knew all the songs. He knew every way in which we approach things. And he knew the Sanskrit well, so I thought, He's bluffing me. I don't believe this man. <laughs> and, you know, I, I was straight forward. I said, Kevin, how is it that you know Pranams for Prabhupada? You know the Mamlacharna. <laughs> you know all the mantras and the melody. He says, well, I, I found the Bhagavatam in a library, and I thought it was the best book I'd ever seen. So I started reading it thoroughly. And then I went online, and I started attending classes. And this is the first time I've ever met a devotee. So I, anyway, lately he said to me, he wants to dedicate himself more. He'd like to know, what's the next step for me? What can I do? He teaches school now. He teaches, what, third, second grade. Uh, and he's here with his girlfriend, Annalie. Oh, he's here, and, right, he's, uh, oh, he's here right now. He's here right now, Oh, yeah. oh where's wanna, Kevin? Yeah, where's our mystery guest? Yeah. <laughs> Hare Krishna. Hey, Hare Krishna. Nice. How are you? Uh, actually, I'm pretty happy. 
that's, that's, you have a, that's a great story about, about what happened to you. Yeah. I would say... So what can you do? What's that? Okay. What can you do? To- I think that um, to really... I think to really advance in Krishna consciousness and become strong, of course we have to follow Prabhupada because Prabhupada is our is our role model, you could say. And what distinguishes Prabhupada is his extraordinary compassion that he he really wanted very much to help other people. He wanted to spread this. <coughs> this knowledge and so um, we've developed a program called Krishna West which is also online KrishnaWest.com which we're trying it's sort of user-friendly Krishna consciousness for Western people that without requiring people to sort of become ethnically Indian uh, they can be themselves and yet they can practice Krishna consciousness and uh, and advance and achieve all the spiritual benefits without having to, I don't know, become a Martian. And so, um, so yeah, if you go, if you go to KrishnaWest.com and read about it, and if you find it interesting, drop us a line. It, it, it's growing actually all over the world now. It's part of this comp, it's part of Prabhupada's mission. But it's it's trying to address the need to allow people in a more natural, comfortable way to practice bhakti yoga. We're not changing the principles or the, the Prabhupada's teachings. It's the same bhakti yoga, but it's um, they're trying to make it a little easier for people. I, I have I have a question, if you will. Or rather, I'd like to hear your whole point. Um, for my meditation students, the mantra I first give is Gora. I give the, the name of Gora. And I explain the identity of Chaitanya Mahaprabhu, but just briefly. And uh, essentially what I, I claim is that Gora is a transcendental sound vibration that identifies the person Gora, who is the source of reality. And uh, they're happy with that, meditating on that. But I think more knowledge and understanding from you would be helpful because uh, I also later in the meditation class introduced the Hare Krishna mantra and I make the distinction between Dhyan Yoga and uh, my claim is that Dhyan is sensually, sometimes sensually more gratifying Dhyan? The Maha Mantra, the Hare Krishna Mantra, is the superlative pathway to transcendence, to complete fulfillment. But that it requires some understanding more so than Jnana. Maybe you could oh, correct oh, me oh, if I... Oh, 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 you're talking about Jnana, knowledge. Jnana, yeah, Jnana Yoga. Oh, I thought, yeah, I thought you said Jnana meditation. Okay. Um, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> And across the airwaves, yeah. Actually, that's that's the one. That's the one case where Sanskrit is not pronounced phonetically. You have a J and an N, because it's, I guess it's hard to say Jnan, and so 
somehow in India, I don't know when they started saying gyan. It's kind of like the way it's kind of like the way we pronounce lasagna. You know, the Italians they don't say lasagna, they say lasagna. So the phonetic lasagna of Sanskrit is gyan, I guess. Sort of avoiding a sort of an awkward combination of consonants. Anyway, knowledge is always there. You know, we never want to be ignorant. And so bhakti yoga uh, is not to put aside knowledge and instead all chant Hare Krishna. That's not the idea. The idea is that we do cultivate knowledge. For example, when I joined the movement in uh, September of 1969, as I say, my God, that was, um, geez, that was 48 years ago. So I would say I must have been really young, you know, because I'm so young now. I, I think I just, I was the first baby that just crawled into the temple there. <laughs> no, actually, I was not a baby. So um, when I joined the movement, I was a student at Berkeley, at UC Berkeley. And um, I wrote a letter to Prabhupada asking him if I should stay in school and finish my degree or... Um, drop out and just go chant Hare Krishna on the street. And interestingly, Prabhupada wrote back to me and said, I should stay in school, that I, that I, I should have knowledge. Of course, obviously at UC Berkeley, they weren't giving a lot of spiritual knowledge, but, you know, just to have sort of the, the intellectual and conceptual tools you need to express any system of thought in a reasonable and persuasive way. And then, of course, when I, I um, very enthusiastically studied Prabhupada's books. So knowledge, I mean, it's natural. Some people, I mean, some people are not, let's say, intellectual. Some people are not really into reading books, but some people are. And so in Krishna consciousness, you don't substitute chanting Hare Krishna for knowledge. Uh, Prabhupada encouraged us to study and to learn and also chant Hare Krishna. But when you, yes. Well, you know, it's interesting. We did have a mis... I was talking about Dhyana. D-H-Y Dhyana. Oh. Dhyana. That's what I thought you were saying. Dhyana. Yeah, and, that, and, that, and, and so, it, sorry. I'm okay. just clarifying. What you said was so valuable and I've been having a conversation with Satyaraj about this very topic. So oh, yeah, I, Dhyana. I don't, yeah, but um, you know, here an, no, an, an interesting point about Diana that the Japanese pronunciation of Diana, which they kind of struggle with, is Zen. So the word Zen, Zen. actually is a Japanese pronunciation of Diana. But the nice thing about Krishna consciousness is that everything is there. So, I mean, when I chant Hare Krishna, it is Diana yoga because I'm meditating on the Mahamantra. So it's, I mean, Krishna consciousness is sort of one-stop shopping. I don't want to say it's like a spiritual Walmart because that, you know, has implications you don't want to. But it's, but really when you chant, when you're chanting properly, then you are deeply meditating on that sound. And since Krishna is the source of all beauty and pleasure, what better to meditate on? I mean, it reminds me. Well, reminds me, like when I when I what's that? And so, the Angora is the first way I 
I introduce Krishna. Yeah, that's fine. And yeah, Gora's. Yeah, Gora's. Not, one word. Well, Gora's the name of Krishna as he appears in the sage. So it's he's. I mean, he's like a super nice guy. Came back here to this world just to help us in this age, so it's a nice place to start. Uh, can you hear me? Yes, we can hear you. I'm just looking around and wondering. Uh, I'm just I'm so pleased to see people taking the meditation class as well as people for Bhakti Yoga. Yeah, that's great. That's great. If, if I just wanted to throw this in, it, it reminds me when I was young. And used to go to parties in L.A., you know, middle school, high school, or, you know, you go to parties, and I have to admit, you know, the first thing usually people do when they go to a party is kind of do a little demographic study, like, you know, who's cute, who's not cute, who do I have a chance for, and you kind of, you know, you kind of map out the terrain. It's just, I guess it's just, I don't think I'm the only human being that ever did that. And so... And then, of course, you can say, okay, that person's really attractive, but probably can't afford it. Like, like you know, probably not doable. So what's the, like, the best doable thing here? So, I mean, it's, it's, it's just natural. I was, I was just thinking that because it's just, it's just natural that we're always pursuing our own happiness and our own well-being. And so in terms of meditating, if we can meditate directly on the source of all pleasure and the source of all beauty, then, yeah, go for it. Like, why settle for less? Yeah. So Gora, right. yeah, Gora is, is Krishna, but Krishna specifically as he came in this age, and, and you know, with a, out of love, to help us in this difficult age. Carol has uh, a background in Buddhism and uh, an interest in uh, transcendence, a background, uh, a, a, a background in what? Buddhism. Oh, Buddhism. Uh huh. And and she has a real abiding interest in transcendence. So she came to all the classes practically for the meditation course. And uh, I just wanted to introduce you. Oh yeah, I'd be happy to meet her. There's Harold wearing white. Hello. Oh, Carol, I can't. Oh, hi, Carol. Hi. I was wondering if you had any questions. Yes, good questions in the class. <laughs> I, I, was, I was just listening to this conversation. I thought something interesting that what you said about our imagination being able to create a better world. I think that's an interesting. That's interesting to me. <coughs> Creating a better world. Yeah. Would, would it really be better? I don't know. <laughs> mm -hmm. If we create some kind of our imagination, would it really be better than the world we have? Or would it be worse? Um, uh, huh. Well, worse, that, that'd be a challenge. Um, I think... <laughs> example from my youth. I'm full of examples from my youth. I think that um, 
it's like when you're on a sports team. Yeah, I, I used to play a lot of sports. And so when you go out to play the game, whatever sport it is, the other team may look better than you or maybe hard or whatever, but you go out there and you play the best game you can. As they say, you know, you leave it all in the field. And, and that's really what Krishna teaches in the Gita. He says that that you have a right to do your duty. But the result really is something we offer to God. So the way I put it sometimes regarding my life on earth and my position as a spiritual leader, that I just work here. And I understand that I'm trying to serve Krishna to the best of my ability, and that ultimately it's his planet. All these souls belong to him, not to me. I can't control anyone. I mean, God forbid I should, you know, want to possess or control another soul. And so it's my duty and my inspiration to do the best I can, to do the very best I can. And, um, as they say, win, lose, or draw, you do your best. And, and hopefully, we can make a difference. I, uh, I, went to, I was in Berkeley in the late 60s, so I was, I can't say in the middle of everything, because I wasn't, you know, I was just young, I wasn't the big leader, but, but I was out there in the street, and I was in all these famous demonstrations, and so I kind of grew up with this, when I went to college at the age of, I went to Berkeley at the age of 18, and it really was permeating the atmosphere, this whole sense of changing the world, you know, if I had a hammer and all that. It, it was really permeating the world, this, and so I think um, that's been lost to a great extent. I've, I've seen some studies, social science studies, and young people nowadays don't feel confident they can make a difference or anyone can make a difference. They look at the older generations and all their demonstrations and all their attempts and what do you get? You know, the world that we see. And so I, I think it's really important that despite the disappointments, that we not be discouraged, that we go out there and try our best because if all the good people are discouraged, it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. I remember when I was at Harvard, I used to uh, drive over the Charles River occasionally to visit the local Iskon Temple. And so when I was driving back to the campus, um, there's this old bridge, almost everything in Boston is old. There's this old bridge going back to Harvard Square, and on the bridge was a plaque that said, uh, the community of the wise is the welfare of the world. I thought that was really beautiful. The community of the wise is the welfare of the world. So in that sense, all the, all the people who are wise, the people who know that we should be kind and generous, that we should understand our eternal nature and help others to understand their eternal nature, the vote, those of us who grasp that, uh, that community of the wise is the only real hope for this planet. And so as daunting as the task may seem, as improbable that we could really change the world, um, I think there's, we just have to, we have to go out there and try, as a, you know, just play the best game we can. So, let's go team.
I'm, I'm, I guess I'm sort of playing impresario. Uh, I wanted to introduce Corey, who uh, he's the president of the board of the church. He and his wife do a lot of uh, the administrative work and uh, inspire and make cohesive the project. Uh, Corey um, also is in the uh, computer world, the digital world. Uh, he's been with Symantec for a few decades. And... Um, and uh, so his response to the meditation is that, wow, this is so wonderful because I want to be involved in the world. The very thing you were just talking about, making it a better world. I mean, he's worked a lot with NOW, a national organization for women. Um, he's worked with um, social activism projects here in Wichita. He's worked so much with the church and he works with his job. So it's exhausting, really exhausting and elevating. And then he finds this meditation peace, gives him respite from the battle. So, I mean, that's one of the things Corey has shared with me, his experience of practicing meditation. So maybe you can back a little bit. Well, um, I mean... This man. Yeah, bravo. Sounds like a really an admirable life. Absolutely. We value him very much at the church. We all do our part, don't we? Yeah. Um, that's why I um, came up, well, we're just instruments, really. But the idea of Krishna West trying to, you know, it's like prices are slashed. Everything must go. So... <laughs> Because it's it's so difficult for people in this age, because there's so much distraction, it's so difficult for people to commit to serious spiritual practice that our job is not to make it more difficult by throwing in at no extra cost that you've got to, you know, wear exotic clothes and, and stuff like that. I know uh, in L.A. I have a place which is um, just a 10, 15 minute walk from UCLA. And if, I don't know if you know UCLA, but it's the old part of campus. It's really beautiful. It's very, very, really beautiful. And so um, so most days when I'm in L.A., I'll just take my morning walk over to UCLA. And um, when I do, if I go, depending on the season, if I go a little later when the students are all there, um, I feel like I'm in a zombie movie. Because you know, they're all texting and it's like, hello, is anyone present? Is anyone out there? Because, you know, so it's people nowadays, and we just have to somehow, you know, invade their texting services or something. But, yeah, the world is um, is so distracted. I remember, you know, in one sense, I think the collapse of the Soviet Union, from my perspective, was kind of like, I don't want to say the death, but sort of the near death of of Western philosophy, because if you look at the sociology of philosophy, in other words, the role that philosophy played in society, you find that a few centuries ago, philosophers were often like rock stars, and educated people, people that, not, you know, great intellectuals, but just ladies and gentlemen, uh, you know, were seriously interested in these things, and, and when I was in Berkeley, um, of course, Marxism was a big deal. It was right in the middle of the Cold War. And uh, there were all these Marxists, socialists, 
students for democratic society. But it's interesting, in order to understand Marx, you had to understand Hegel, the whole notion of the historical dialectic. And it was often said that, you know, Marx had just kind of flipped Hegel, the dialectic. And, and to understand Hegel, of course, you had to understand Kant and Hume. And so, because so many people were politically active, in order to be informed, at least the students, you had to know something about the Western philosophical tradition. And so, and we would talk about those things. And uh, I don't know if, I mean, you know, people who were there back then, figures like Herbert Marcuse, I mean, they were just, they were like these celebrity thinkers and philosophers. And, and nowadays it's just, when's the new iPhone coming out? It's sad. Yes. So, um, but we just have to try, like, like I was saying just a minute ago. Um, that's why I started Krishna West, because it's already so difficult for people to um, seriously commit to spiritual life that without <coughs> compromising essential principles, without knocking down, so to speak, load-bearing walls, um, I want to do everything humanly possible to facilitate, to make it easier for people, more comfortable, more natural for people to, to take up spiritual life. That, that was the point of Krishna West. Um, Acharya, I'd like to introduce Rhea and Krista. Yes. They're very good friends of each other. And they were driving past our church and they saw our sign saying that there's a meditation message. Stop the car. Meditate. Now they brought two friends to want to take the meditation class. So these two are very dynamic. They do all the classes, as did Amber, who's just behind them. Uh, so these are keenly interested. These people are keenly interested in higher knowledge, in perfecting consciousness, in having a better quality of life, making it a better world. So I wanted you to know Krista, yeah, and Amber, and uh, the fact that they've dedicated time every day to doing the transcendental practices that we came together to learn. So, thank you very much. It's a pleasure to meet you. I've been reading Bhagavad Gita, and uh, Krista's given her daughter a copy of Bhagavad Gita as it is. So she's reading Bhagavad as it is and giving her daughter uh, a copy. Her daughter is not here right now. And Rhea and I both read Many Lives, Many Masters. And Rhea and she both read Many Lives, Many Masters, which I recommended to them. Brian Walsh's book uh, that exposes the reality of the fact that we survive the death of our bodies and uh, we're eternal beings. Mm -hmm. that scope, like you described, to go where we need to go. We just have to know what the field has to offer. Right. So they're very interested about college. Well, that's great. Uh, yes, yeah, it's, it's really a pleasure to meet you guys. In fact, they want to take uh, they want to take the next level. So I said that I would I would talk to you and others. Not now, of course, but you know about what that would be. You know, sure. the next uh, we did a week class in meditation, and I considered it very foundational. Maha Mantra and the Gore Mantra, and so there been discussions about transcendence, spiritual survival, death, like that. But uh, they're interested in going further. 
That's great. Well, you're, you ladies are in very good hands. That is something really nice about it's how dangerous to get so lucky to have David. I of all places in the world here. It is really lucky to make the games work. I mean, so many, so many great people there. I mean, all of you, it's just, it's good. It's humbling for those of us who tend to be bi-coastal. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I had a teacher years back. Uh, he's a medical doctor, taught at Rutgers, but he also taught alchemy on the side. I took his alchemy course. <laughs> and he taught me some very interesting things, one of which he said, the people of God are everywhere. Wherever you go, the people of God are there. If you don't meet them, that's your fault. <laughs> that's what he said. Very true. So that, with that was one of his teachings that no, I thought it's, is true. It's, it's very, very true. Oh, excuse me one second. <coughs> Just uh, got a little cold. Yeah, I, I've had, I've met the most amazing people. I mean, one of the best programs I ever did in my life, because I've spoken in hundreds of universities, was at the University of Mississippi. Another one, the University of Iowa, and of course, they're in Wichita, so many great people. So, yeah, yeah, the people of God are everywhere. It's, it's very true. It's very true. It is. It is. So, the last thing I wanted to say, um, and then again, open, you know, any questions you may have. I, I don't know your guest names, um, forgive me. Karen. Karen and Joey. Uh, but on Gorkhanin just passed, I brought Chaitanya to Bhaktivan for the first time. So you've been, you've graced Bhaktivan, you know Bhaktivan near Lawrence. Uh, so they were all pleased to know that on Gorkhanin I was bringing Chaitanya to the celebration. 
Chaitanya is a student at WSU, um, finishing up graduate work, yeah? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Almost done with his graduate work. And are you going back to India or staying here? I don't remember. Staying here, are you going to postgraduate work or work? Looking for a job, career in industrial Okay. Industrial engineering. Okay. So it's a full group of people. And uh, I feel very privileged uh, to be able to uh, introduce what Prabhupada has given me. And uh, as I explained to them, uh, so Tamal Krishna Goswami uh, initiated me, but he's my guru, and then I have so many gurus, and you are chief among those many gurus that I have. We have this relationship, and any of you can have a relationship with uh, H.D. He lives to um, serve his guru, uh, Prabhupada, who wrote the Bhagavad Gita commentary. Uh, he lives for that. He, he's traveled to Israel. He just came from the U.K., Actually, we had a we had a we had a really nice program a couple of days ago in Istanbul. In Istanbul. Yeah. And uh, before that, wow. we, we had some great programs in Belgrade also. In Belgrade, okay. Yeah, everywhere, everywhere. Just, this, uh, uh, I, I'm wondering about the Jane Austen. Uh, has that been posted yet? Oh yeah, I um. I'm a big Jane Austen fan, and um, I, we actually spent two weeks in her village. And, uh, in her village? Yeah, in Chawton, in the county of Hampshire, and um, we did a program there in the village hall on Jane Austen and, and Sri Krishna, you know, Bhagavad Gita and Jane Austen, and uh, it was really a lot of fun. A lot of people came, and, and, and we, I think we posted that, and so, yeah. Is it posted on the West? Okay. I, I think it is, or, or, or HD Goswami Facebook. I personally don't go on social media. It would be the death of me. But, but the, um, yeah. But I think I think HD Goswami Facebook, something like that. Okay. Yeah, we had a we had a really good really good response in England. A lot of interest. From the Indian Punisher, Greena has a verse. From the Kipanishad that uh, I'm not going to stumble through the uh, Sanskrit, I'll just do the translation. One who always sees all living entities as spiritual sp sparks in quality, one with the Lord, becomes a true knower of things. What then can be illusion or anxiety for him? I should read that again slowly. Uh, one who always sees all living entities. As spiritual sparks, in quality one with the Lord, becomes a true knower of things. Then can be illusion or anxiety for such a person. Yeah, Kim Moha Kipshoka. So rhetorically, where is the illusion? Where is the anxiety or distress for such a person? Right. It's a wonderful inspirational teaching. Mantra from the Ishapanishad. Yeah. The, the Gita stresses the equality of all beings. That's that's a, a big topic in the Gita, as I explain in the book. And uh, Krishna describes universal empathy, Atmopanyena Sarvata, that one who sees 
literally by comparing oneself to all other beings, one sees the equality of all beings. And uh, something like what Jesus said, love your neighbor as yourself. Of course, Jesus was quoting the Old Testament. But yes, Krishna definitely teaches that universal empathy to see the equality of all souls. What time is it in Israel? Uh, it's almost 8.30, so I have a little, little few more minutes before I turn into a pumpkin. <laughs> Where do you go from Israel? Uh, I, I plan on a writing retreat here. It was very kindly arranged by the Israeli devotees, and um, especially Tarani. And uh, I plan to stay here two months. And then, and then on the way back, I'll probably have to stop in Italy because a lot of interest in Krishna West there. Italy, probably France, uh, possibly Belgium, depends. Uh, back to England, I people are really insisting I go to Scotland and Ireland also. And after when that, probably Portugal and then Brazil. To the bank, and then on the way back from Brazil, probably we stop in Colombia, the country Colombia, and uh, press back to California for a little stop. And then after that, maybe I'll maybe stop in Wichita, see everybody on the way back. And then uh, mm -hmm. after a stop in the U.S., probably I'll go to Australia, where we have a tremendous amount of interest. Very nice. Yeah, you, you know, Corey wasn't there when you played piano at first you knew, but Bonnie uh, was there. <laughs> so we, we, we look forward to your being here again. Mm. That would be... Yeah, I, I'd love Adwaita. to, I'd love to go there. What's that? Adwaita, Edwin Bryant, oh, yeah. you spoke at Bhakti about yeah. two months ago now. It was wonderful. Oh, yeah, yeah. Very, he, very... He's a good, very good friend. Very, very, yeah. yeah, very good devotee, very intelligent, and uh, in fact, at Rutgers, where he teaches, he's using my book in his course. Yeah, yeah, it was so, very enlivening. Yeah, yeah, he's, he's... Yeah. <laughs> uh, uh, could you uh, say a few words about, um, uh, you know, uh, meditation uh, is kind of a key that opens up the door. Uh, those of us... Um, all of us really we have busy lives doing things and want to live in this world and, and make it a better world uh what uh, um what advice do you have that goes in sympathy with the meditation that's you know where we we develop a, a better selves and others and you know the other steps outside of meditation meditation is a part of the great whole right oh yeah, yeah of course um in the Bhagavad Gita, chapter 11, Krishna says, there's a very famous verse where he says, Mayaivaite nihata purvameva nimitamatram bhavasavyasachan. He was speaking to Arjuna, they were on the battlefield. And the reason they were on a battlefield is because there had been what you'd call, I guess, in modern language, a coup d'etat. There had been a uh, Sort of the bad guys that usurped 
the government. And Krishna was actually urging Arjuna to fight for constitutional government. Constitutional government. But anyway, in the course of that, I remember one time I was walking with Prabhupada at Rancho Park in Los Angeles, and he stopped, he was talking about this verse, and where Krishna tells Arjuna that the battle is really already over. I've already done everything. He said, but you, just be the instrument. Just be the instrument. And so becoming empowered to change the world, uh, we, we have to be empowered by Krishna. We are all tiny souls. You know, I mean, who cares about us in this world? We're all tiny souls. But God is very powerful. And if we can obtain that, that blessing to be empowered, then we can do great things in the world. The way I put it sometimes is that all of you can have your Rudolph moment. You know, then one foggy Christmas Eve, Krishna came to say, so. <laughs> So I call it the Rudolph moment. And so really the extent to which the extent to which we can do good in the world, the extent to which we can make the world a better place, it really depends upon the empowerment of Krishna. We can't think that we can do it because who are we? I mean we're we know how the way the world is and all those powerful forces in the world and what can we do? But if Krishna empowers us, if Krishna acts through us, then everything is possible. So, so the whole spirit of bhakti yoga is to cultivate compassion and to really care about the world and about other souls, but at the same time to always pray to Krishna to empower us to do good. And, and that's when Prabhupada, when Prabhupada first came to America, he was on the boat. And he thought, oh my God, what, what can I do? Because he was, he was um, 69, just about, just turning 69. And uh, sort of penniless and in a foreign country. And, you know, Prabhupada was born in the 19th century, the end of the 19th century. And so there he just sort of steamed into the Boston Harbor. And uh, he told me one time, he said that even as I was getting off the boat, I had no idea whether I should turn left or right. He just, somehow or other, he, he thought I have to try to fulfill my guru's order. I have to try to spread this mission. He had no idea. And so he wrote a very beautiful poem. It's called his arrival poem, in which he said that, you know, I'm just a poor, you know, just tiny little soul. He said, but if it's your desire, Krishna, he said, make me dance as you wish. Make me, that's a nachao, nachao, it's a Bengali, that make me dance. And so he said, by your empowerment, everything is possible. And so he, as he arrived in this, you know, well, not the country here in America, he was begging for empowerment. And so it's nice, it's a way that you can seek to do great things, but without vanity, without pride. If we always remember that we're just instruments, 
then we can seek that empowerment and yet always remember that we are eternally humble servants of God. So it's, it, it's the way to wield power in the world without becoming corrupted by it. I've got a follow-up. Um, some of uh, uh, some of us that were in uh, Shakti's we know, um, uh, meditation class uh, don't necessarily subscribe to the uh, What advice do you have for those of us that want to do you know good in the world and know that there's something collectively stronger um, and, and meditation is helping to, to tap to that? Uh, I'm sorry, you said you don't subscribe to what? Uh, deity. Oh, deity. Did you hear? He's saying, don't, don't subscribe to a deity. Agnosticism, atheism, oh, right. you know, the sense that there is a greater something which you tap into through meditation, but the worship of God as a deity that conceptually is problematic for some. Yeah. Yeah, that's sort of the zeitgeist. It's the spirit of the times. Um, okay, <laughs> maybe I'll suggest a few ways you could think about that. Um, you're talking about just in the sense of a personal God or specifically like a deity in a temple or both? Uh, just, you know, a deity in general, I guess. Um, uh, one of the gentlemen uh, isn't here today, uh, but uh, he's involved in his I am in this group that we have at church. Uh, and we see the value in, um, um, and you know, met people, and I grew up in a, you know, with a Christian background, I grew up with a deity, and then I kind of prayed away, and I'm kind of back in the 1960s where David was, where he said, oh, I'll give this a try, I don't believe this necessary deity stuff, and then he, you know, he evolved in school. So, um, it's going to maybe be a decade before I get to that point. Like <laughs> <laughs> my shorthand for Bhakti is the school of two. That's what I tell my students. It's the school of two, graduating from the school of one, graduating from the school of zero, yeah. graduating from the school of yeah. Okay, okay, let, let me do a quick little review here. And, and I'm approaching this now philosophically, not from the point of view of the true believer who was going to rebuke all, you know, contrary views. But from the philosophical point of view, atheism is a non-starter. Agnosticism is, you know, it's more reasonable. Atheism is a non-starter because if there's no God, no one knows everything. And if no one knows everything, no one knows if there's a God or not. So, so just from a philosophical point of view, it's just, it's kind of a, it's sort of a philosophical dead end. Agnosticism, I think, is more existentially serious in the sense that someone says, I just don't know. And I'm not going to pretend that I know, but I'm not going to pretend I absolutely don't. So, um... The way I look at it is that um, I think we have to look beyond religion in the sense that nowadays people, it's very common to say it's a cliche nowadays, people want to be or see themselves as spiritual but not religious. I mean, religion itself, especially institutional religion, kind of has a bad name, which it has very sincerely earned. And. Um, <laughs> So, yeah, if you look at the religious history of 
certainly the Western world and also other parts of the world. Um, the way I put it is, as bad as you think it was, you may think it was really bad with inquisitions and this and that, and fanaticism, but actually if you study it carefully, you find it was much worse than you think. And so, I mean, there were all kinds of good moments also, but so how do human beings, let's sort of shift from philosophy to psychology now, because I think the issue with Didi is, um, I don't think it's philosophical, because, I mean, and I'll say it a little more in a, in a moment, but I think philosophically, not only is some form of absolute truth not a problem, I think it's almost philosophically required, which I'll explain in a minute. But um, psychologically, uh, there's a bad history. And, and essentially, in the Western world, religious people stopped persecuting other people only when they lost the legal right to do so. And so, um, naturally, we go to the other extreme. This is, this is called, of course, the pendulum effect. First person that used it, stated pendulum effect, that language is actually Galileo talking about physics. And um, Newton, of course, talks about it. Every reaction produces an equal and opposite reaction. And it's true not only in physics, it's true in psychology as well. And so um, people have turned away from or uh, what they see as uh, a very problematic human institution. And as, as far as God, as far as God himself, herself, themselves, itself, whatever, we won't you know, quarrel over the pronoun right now. As far as God, um, of course, some people have trouble with the G word, but um, so let, let's talk philosophy now, not religion. Philosophically, a rational human being is naturally trying to find, you could say, an equation or a term which explains all other equations or terms. Even if you look at physics, I mean, there's always this attempt. For example, we have there's the wave-particle dilemma in quantum mechanics. And, um, you know, why, why say it's a problem? Just say, okay, sometimes it's a wave, sometimes it's a particle. The very fact that this is universally recognized as a problem, as a conceptual problem, that almost universally it's, it's recognized that if, if we had a better understanding, we would be able to explain it, everything, it's not really that it's this, no, it's that, no, it's that, no, it's this. It's really, we just lack the conceptual analytic tools to explain it in a more simple way. In fact, in, in philosophy, that's called parsimony. Parsimony means kind of like the most elegant or the best explanation is the most simple. So, for example, if you look at atheism, atheism is not philosophically satisfying because it has almost no explanatory power. It doesn't explain anything. It just says there's no explanation. And if you look at polytheism, it's interesting. If you study around the world, whether in the Middle East, Mesopotamia, Persia, if you look at Egypt, if you look at the Greco-Roman world, if you look at different polytheisms, um, they always tend to be prominent in pre-philosophical societies. And what I mean by that is if you look at Plato's Republic, at um, 
Plato's revolt against Homer. Homer was the kind of like the cornerstone of the Greek curriculum. The Greeks had this famous educational system so that even like Romans, I mean, people wanted a Greek tutor because they were they kind of had the prestige educational system, which was called the Paideia. And, and, and the cornerstone of Greek education, of course, was, was Homer. And so it was very revolutionary. Plato said, you gotta get rid of Homer, get him out of the schools. And, and, and the reason he gives is that Homer's polytheistic picture of divine power is, um, Plato feels, is, is, is corrupting because the gods aren't worthy of the name. They're like kind of like these immature adolescents. And so what's interesting is, it, so polytheism is also not philosophically satisfying because if there are many gods, we're just kicking the can down the road. It's like, where does everything come from? Why does the world exist at all? Why are we conscious? We're talking again, not just the physical universe, but the metaphysical universe, which is even more important because people give their physical lives for metaphysical principles like freedom, justice, and, and so on and so forth, or love. So, so Plato revolts, so polytheisms don't really work. If you say maybe there's some kind of deity or absolute truth, but it's impersonal, it's just some kind of force in the universe or force beyond the universe, that, that is also philosophically problematic. Even, even if we say that, okay, in some way there is some kind of force in or beyond the universe, but then why are we persons and, and, and what is the status of our personal existence? We don't want to be treated impersonally. If you look at evolution, if you look at the evolution of species and suspending for a moment the real issue, which is not science, it's philosophy of science, and that is why do we have a particular fossil record? It's not science, by the way, that's philosophy of science, uh, which a lot of scientists don't know because they never take philosophy classes. But anyway, if you, if you just sort of look neutrally at the fossil record, you see that with a significant number of anomalies, what you tend to get is that um, older species are more simple, uh, more recent, or more complex. What you find is the more highly evolved a, a, a creature is, and again, this is just science, this is not theology, the more highly evolved a creature is, the more personal it is. So even among ourselves, the more empathetic someone is, the more personal someone is with us, the more we think they are an evolved creature. And the more someone treats us impersonally, no empathy, no personal concern, the more we think that person's a real jerk. And so we just look at the universe, the higher living beings go, the more personal they are. And so what I say is suicide is not healthy whether it's uh, physical or philosophical or mystical. And so if one simply rejects even the possibility of a personal, you could call it deity, it's not the word I use all the time, but just, just a personal truth. And if, if you consider that ultimately there's a source of everything, then if, if your source, if that which is the source of your existence is impersonal, it means that your personal life, your freedom, your love, everything you most value, ultimately uh, 
is not real. Or at least it's temporary. And from the Buddhist point of view, to be temporary is to be unreal. That's the whole point of shunyata. Because the really real is not temporary. So it, it's, it's kind of like shooting yourself in the foot. It, it's in the act of sort of um, banishing any kind of personal deity, where does that leave you? And where does that leave your personal existence? And then what I would say is, I, I don't think someone would make that move just on objective philosophical grounds. I mean, I, you know, anyone's welcome to show me how they're doing that, that this has nothing to do with my psychology, it has nothing to do with my feelings, my childhood experiences. It's just, I, I was being rigorously objective and I concluded that there cannot be a personal deity. I don't think someone could really show that. I mean, just human reason, I don't think leads to that. I think it actually leads to the opposite. So if we are honest with ourselves, I think we should examine ourselves and say, why am I allergic to the notion of some kind of personal truth? Again, you can use the word deity or some other word. Because after all, if there is a God, if there is a God, then someone is actually God. For example, you can, uh, I mean, if you look at the universe, if, if you just look closely enough, anywhere in the universe you find art, A-R-T, art. Like, for example, if you Google uh, highly magnified images of um, sand grains, I mean, it's just, uh, as we used to say back then, it, it blows your mind. If you, if you look at pictures of sand grains, they're, they're like jewels, these fantastic colors and shapes. It's like when you walk on a beach, you're actually walking on an infinite aggregation of jewels. If you look at snowflakes, if you look, I mean, anywhere in the universe, just look closely enough, you find art. And again, the more consciousness evolves, the more personal it becomes. So I don't think a, an objective philosopher is not just kind of reacting to his or her own psychological issues. I, I think if someone was truly an objective philosopher, they, uh, they would have to realize at least that I cannot whimsically reject the idea of some kind of personal absolute truth. And um, yeah, it, it bears further investigation. Like Plato, I mean, I agree with Plato that often personal deity is depicted in sort of a ludicrous way, or at least an imperfect way. I mean, in some traditions, God is like a serial torturer. I mean, you know, I mean, God tortures his own children forever because of relatively minor theological mistakes. And uh, who is it? Um, oh of course, reject that. Yeah, that's absurd. I know, I, I know for me, uh, the search for where I can hang my hat uh, as far as spiritual practices, the deity had to not be a monster, uh, not be absurd, uh, not be inferior to what I can imagine or suppose. So that's why I kept on searching until I found Krishna consciousness. It was the first time I was exposed to something that didn't offend, disturb, frighten, or disappoint me. Yeah. I, I think there's another philosophical problem, which was actually 
refuted, I believe, by an ancient Greek sort of mystic group called the Orphics, where they worshipped uh, Orpheus. It was kind of like a Krishna figure for them. And we're talking about two and a half thousand years ago. And I once read this, I was studying uh, ancient Greek philosophy for particular reasons, and um, they had a very interesting claim, this Orphic group. Their claim was that even though people in general think that form limits something, as soon as you put a shape or a form on something, you've limited it, that actually form breaks down barriers. And I'll give a few examples of, of what they were getting at. We're having a conversation right now, and um, so if I just, let's say, grunted or just made some kind of nonverbal noise, uh, I think the semantic content would be very limited. I mean, it would have, wouldn't have much meaning. Of course, I mean, I'm sure I could always attract some sort of mindless followers who would see all, all the wisdom of the universe in my grunting. But, but I, I don't think rational people would ever fall for that. So, what is language after all? Language is a almost an inconceivably complex, sophisticated shaping, forming of sound. Which, of course, then later gets committed to writing. That's another issue. But so that, I mean, that's the reason why computers still, you know, computers very advanced, can't really have an intelligent conversation. I mean, an interesting, and the reason is because human verbal communication is so almost inconceivably complex. As many nuances, just the use of language. I mean, right now I'm speaking English, and it's sort of, you know, simple English. But there are so many accents and nuances, and I mean, I mean, the, the, the repetitions of a word. And it's very extremely complicated. So, really, like you know, my fair lady, the more you are able to shape language in ever more complex, sophisticated forms, the more you can communicate. So, communication actually expands the extent to which you can form language. And the same is true for sculpture. Uh, so, now, of course, the argument against form is, is obvious, that you have a body, and your body has a spatial perimeter. And so that spatial, sort of three-dimensional perimeter defines where your body ends and something else begins in space. And so the idea is that since form, like a body, limits us or delimits us, and since God is unlimited, there couldn't be a personal God. Uh, the problem with this is, the logical problem with this argument is that it applies material physics to a non-physical being. And the presumption of this argument is to think that all form or all shape or all bodies are like human material bodies. And, and if you look at mystic traditions, uh, actually, uh, in, in medieval Spain, there was, a, if you may know, the, the Jewish community uh, flourished in Spain under the Moors, the Muslim Moors, when the 
La Reconquista, when the Catholics took over, they just had the Inquisition. So they actually did much better under the Muslims. But anyway, under the Moors, the Jewish community flourished. You have figures like Maimonides, and uh, there were mystic groups that talked about the spiritual body of God, and you know the Sufis or the yogis in India. So if you look at traditions, and they tend to be mystic traditions, not just kind of clumsy anthropomorphism. We're not talking about sort of clumsy pre-philosophical anthropomorphism. We're talking about very sophisticated intellectuals who are talking in, in, in somewhat mystic terms about, about form, about shape, about the... You know, it's interesting because when I was in school and my teachers were bashing uh, medieval philosophy because it tended to be theological, it's kind of like emerging of philosophy and theology, and, and I remember that we were given the example that you know, so-called philosophers were so stupid back then that they were debating how many how many angels could dance on the head of a pin. Do you remember that one? Did you ever mm -hmm. hear? Yeah. Actually, and and so we were you know we were supposed to sort of laugh at stupid medieval theologians slash philosophers. Actually, I, I think what were they really asking though? If you say how many angels dance on the head of a pin. You can take it as just silliness, or you can take it as a sophisticated metaphor for a serious philosophical question, which is that, do spiritual bodies occupy material space? And so, if you pose the question that way, uh, it's not just silly and stupid, it's actually profound. Do spiritual bodies occupy material space? And if so, how? So, I mean, it's a question, they're talking about string theory now and parallel universes, and so we don't really know what space is yet. I mean, we're still, I mean, physicists are still working on that one, what is space. But anyway, so, um, also, at the present time, one last point, and then I, I don't want to uh, flog this philosophical horse to death, but one last point. <laughs> One last point would be that, um, I don't know about you, but speaking for yours truly, um, I think nothing is ultimately more important in life than personal relationships. Falling in love, staying in love, or just having true friends, I mean true friends that that you know you can count on for your whole life. And, family and you know and of course there's always romantic love which is kind of like the uh you know the grand prize if, if you can win it so but the point is that um how can we take what is ultimately the most powerful meaningful enjoyable part of human life and say that does not exist in the source of our, in our source, that we come from an absolute truth, but in that absolute truth, you don't find what is ultimately most powerful, meaningful, and attractive in human life. It, it, it's actually a simple logical point that a uh, actually all forms of scholarly research uh, assume a logical principle. They don't talk about it so much because they're you don't take philosophy courses anymore. But 
they assume a logical principle that a cause is present in its effect. Because after all, if you have a cause, you don't know it is a cause until the effect manifests. Let's, see, let's say someone, for example, smokes 50 Cuban cigars every day. Let's say back in the 50s when doctors went on television to tell you how good smoking was for your health. So it's when the effect manifests that you understand the cause. And let's say there's a fender bender in the road and the insurance adjusters and the police come out. They assume a logical principle. The cause is present in the effect. So if you study the effect, the skid marks, the damage of the cars, the position of the cars, by studying the effects, you can logically work your way back to the cause. Ditto for biomedical research. Ditto for serious historical studies. Ditto for everything. That's the way research is conducted on this planet. You start with effects and you work your way back to causes based on the logical assumption that the cause is somehow significantly present in the effect. Now, if we take that logical principle, we're trying to understand ourselves as intensely personal conscious beings, somehow the cause of our existence must be present in us since we are effects. If there is any kind of God or absolute truth or anything, somehow that cause must be present in the effect in us. And so to deny personal consciousness in, in the cause of our existence is, again, it's not good philosophy, so it must, something psychological must be going on there. And I'm, you know, I'm not a psychologist, I'm not an amateur psychologist, and I, you know, out of, I think it's impolite to psychoanalyze other people against their will or without their permission. So I'm not going to psychoanalyze anyone. I'm just saying, though, that we have to consider there's a very powerful psychological element in our so-called free intellectual choices. And that if we are simply objective, we'd have to, we couldn't just preemptorily throw out the possibility of a supreme personal consciousness, which is the conclusion that Plato came to actually in the Phaedrus, one of his dialogues. So, Thank you very much. It's a pleasure. Mm -hmm. Pleasure to do business with all of you. <laughs> the phone lines are open. Call in those donations. <laughs> well, I, I recommend that people visit the website if they haven't. And uh, I have your books here uh, for those who are interested. And we can get more if there aren't enough. I want to thank you very much for yeah. taking this time. Thank all of you. It's really, I mean, sincerely, just not being polite or something. It's really a pleasure to, to, to see you, to meet you. I mean, just, I mean, all of you are very special people. And um, it was my pleasure to be able to spend a little time with you. Thank you so much. Thank you. Okay. Give, give our love to Really yeah, yeah. <laughs> Hasta luego. Hasta luego. Hare Krishna. 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 Hare Krishna.
civilization. So thank you all for uh, 